Welcome to Chapter by Chapter. I'm your host, Brian Thomas Krupp, and I believe that stories have a tremendous power for good, and so I write them, and I enjoy sharing them with you. And uh, if you have not uh, been a part of this show before, the way the show goes is I uh, really like to know how things get made. Uh, there's something about knowing how creative people put their uh, creativity to work really excites me. And so um, back in the day when you could rent DVDs from places, I would always look at the movie and then any of the extra stuff. So the uh, listening or watching the movie with the director's commentary or the behind the scenes stuff, loved it. So this show has kind of been built uh, along those same lines. So in just a moment, you'll listen to a chapter from a book that I have written. And then on the other side of that chapter, uh, go into a little bit about uh, how the the chapter was written or issues I was trying to wrestle with in the chapter or you know, if you if you're a writer who is trying to write a story what are things that uh, you might need to consider if you are writing something similar so we will get into uh, chapter 30 of shell game here in just a minute but to catch you up with where we are in the story uh, we're focusing on a detective named Evan Gold in a small Kansas town named Athens, Kansas. And um, there have been a couple of murders that he is on the hook for. The police think he did it. And so he's trying to find out who actually did it so that he doesn't get sent to uh, prison. Along the way, we have found out that his business is failing, his marriage is failing, and he's got a client who just will not tell him the full truth. He's also picked up this pearl-like thing that has, um, it, it warms up and cools down kind of at random. It puts thoughts into his head. And recently um, he uh, saw that it's not a pearl so much as it's a person in disguise from some other land or dimension or thing. And so he's been asked by her to protect her from being found out by of the people who are hunting her down. So he's got a lot on his plate um, at, at the moment. And um, in last week's chapter, he ran into the bad guy and he's trying in this chapter, trying to figure out how do I learn a little bit more about how the Pearl uh, came to be in his possession and what happened to one of the guys named Jason Charles who got murdered and all these things. So. He's going to try to uh, do some backtracking on uh, how he got the pearl and how he thinks the pearl ended up in his hands. So he's going back to uh, this flea market that he bought the pearl from. If you've been listening to the show for or this book for a while, then you know that Evan really likes going to flea markets and picking up stuff. So we're going back there to this flea market and kind of finding uh, you know, where do the, the breadcrumbs go. So that's where we are headed. I think you're caught up. We will get into chapter 30 of Shell Game right after we hear from this week's sponsors. This episode is also sponsored by Showdown in the Yukon, the first book in the Pearl Saga. It is a story of Monterey Jack Danvers, who is a reformed pickpocket who is hired by his old partner in crime to help rescue a uh, stolen 
gold claim up in the Yukon Territory for a widow. He also finds the widow's daughter quite attractive, and that helps him go on this adventure that takes him on uh, stormy seas, through caves, through forest fires, and being hunted down um, in forests, and all kinds of uh, great adventure. And the big question is, Will they be able to uh, rescue this gold mine, uh, this gold claim back from the evil man who uh, took it from this poor widow woman? And then what kind of man does Monterey Jack Danvers turn into by the end of uh, the story? It is also the prelude to uh, Shell Game Part 2 of the Pearl Saga. And you can find Showdown in the Yukon at Amazon.com. You can also find the links uh, to that over at BrianThomasCrop.com. Chapter 30. Evan made a beeline for the flea market bazaar where he first encountered the pearl. He grew in confidence that if Catherine possessed the pearl, and if he could keep everyone's eyes off Catherine, there was a chance that everything could work out. One question that he couldn't get out of his head was if Lillian had stayed in her pearl-like state the whole time she'd been in Athens and possibly Colorado, how she had made it to the flea market. It didn't seem like Jason Charles, Harold Huber, or Claire Porter would have been so careless to put it out of their sight. Still, that's what happened, and there was only one way to get to the bottom of it. And he figured the woman who sold it to him might be able to fill in some blanks. Evan turned the corner to head up commercial, and there was the market with its collection of small stands filled with beautifully eclectic junk. Evan walked with purpose up one row and down the next until he had canvassed the whole lot. He recognized most things. The woman selling rare coins, the immigrant family displaying handmade pottery, the farmer who offered his meager vegetables and jerky. Every few feet was a new booth and a new adventure. He pressed on, resisting his urge to pursue and marvel. He told himself there would be time and perhaps money enough for treasure hunting if he could put this case to bed. However, if he didn't, and some great disaster happened to him or Athens, there would never be a need. He came upon a booth guarded by a plump woman who drew caricatures for a quarter. She was dressed in her Sunday best and sat still on her wooden folding chair, dozing a bit in the afternoon sun. Excuse me, ma'am, Evan smiled. The woman opened one suspicious eye to him. I wondered if you could help me. I think I'm turned around. The woman sat up and rubbed her meaty palms on the thighs of her dress. She pressed creases into the delicate charcoal-smudged fabric. I was here the other day. Evan continued. I bought a handful of necklaces and trinkets from a woman near this location, I think, and now I can't find her. I wondered if you could help me out. The woman eyed Evan for a moment longer. Long enough, Evan thought, that she might not ever answer. Then, in a thick accent, German, Evan thought, she asked him what the woman looked like and what kind of goods she sold. After five or so more questions, the artist said that the woman Evan wanted was the wife of a pawnbroker. She said there was a shop over on E Street, and they only sold at the market when they had a surplus and were not a part of the regular sellers at the bazaar. Evan tipped his hat to the woman and thanked her as he aimed his body in the direction of East Street. The bell on the door jangled as Evan entered the pawn shop. 
The man behind the counter read the paper and looked up to see his potential customer. Evan was relieved to see the woman he remembered engrossed with a notepad near some shelves taking inventory. Selling or buying, the man grunted. Neither, Evan said. The pawnbroker stared at Evan. I was at your booth at the flea market the other day, and I wanted to ask you some questions about what I purchased. No refunds, the man growled, closing his newspaper and raising his torso to its full height. I don't check this stuff before I sell it. If it's worthless, that's the way it goes. You want guarantees? Go find a legitimate seller. That's not what I'm after, Evan set his hat on the counter. I just wanted to know a little bit about what I bought. Sometimes things come with a story that increases the value, so to speak. The man looked hard into Evan's face before replying, Go on. Well, Evan said, I was wondering, how did you get the stuff to begin with? Depends, the man said. Depends on what you got. Just a pile of necklaces and the like. You said this was when? Two days ago, Evan said. Right, two days ago. The man rubbed his stubble on his cheeks with both palms. He looked back at his wife before addressing Evan. Well, how it works is, you get in a bad way and need some quick cash, see? You find something to sell, I ask you no questions about how you got it. Don't ask for no stories. I take it from you and offer you a price. You can take the price and run, or you can have me hold on to it, and maybe you get enough money to buy it back from me. But probably don't. So in most cases, it becomes my property to do with what I like. I don't like to keep things on hand, so I sell them here or at certain local bazaars and flea markets. How's that? Enough of a story for you? I assume you keep records of who gives you the merchandise? Evan asked. Sure, the man said slowly. Could I look in your books? There's a name I'm looking for. You a cop? The pawnbroker asked. Evan shook his head. Tax man? No, Evan said, just trying to track down something for a friend. The pawnbroker looked long and hard at Evan before saying, When was it you said you bought this stuff? Two days ago. The man looked back at his wife. She nodded at him. The pawnbroker brought out a ledger book under the counter and dropped it in front of Evan. Let's see. The man began as he ran his finger down one page, stopped at a number, and then flipped back several pages to another record. The man tapped an entry, nodded his head, and clucked his tongue before looking up at Evan. You see so much stuff like that these days, he said. But I think I remember the man who sold those items to me. He was strange, acted very, shall we say, nervous, like someone was after him. I make it a policy not to ask questions, see? I mean, I don't want to be selling stolen items, but who's going to tell me that's what they're doing, am I right? I can always deny what I don't know. This guy, he would have come in sometime last week, if I'm remembering the right guy. Didn't want a claim ticket, just the cash. The man wiped his hands together in a crisscross motion that said the deal was finished. Then the pawnbroker spun the book around so Evan could read it and ran his bony finger down the rows of names and transactions before stopping about two-thirds down. Here it is, he said. In both print and signature, Evan read the name of Jason Charles. Jason Charles, the pawnbroker said to himself. I've heard that name before. Where have I heard that name before? It was both a question for his mind to ponder and for Evan to answer. He was one of the fellows murdered the other night. I thought you weren't a cop, 
I'm not, Evan said. I'm working for a friend trying to tie up the details of Mr. Charles' affairs. You don't think... The man stammered and unconsciously backed away from the book as if the ghost of Jason Charles pointed an accusing finger at him. No, Evan said. The police have enough other evidence not to implicate this place or you, unless you're the one who pulled the trigger, Evan said with a wry grin. The man looked ashen. No, I never touch a gun. But, but what? Evan asked. I followed him, the woman said, stepping up to the counter as if drawn in by an invisible force. Why did you do that? The pawnbroker's wife closed her eyes for a moment before saying, It was strange. The whole thing. I couldn't leave it alone. You bought the merchandise. I remember you clear enough. And then you talked with this man. The wife tapped Charles' entry in the book. This Charles fellow. Never had a customer who did what he did. Something about him was up to no good. It got my curiosity up, you might say. With him showing up again and so frantic for the stuff. He was so sure he wanted to get rid of these items. So why did he want them back? As I said, it was strange. So I followed him around after you two split up. Probably seen too many of those cloak and dagger flicks for my own good. That's what he says. She hooked her thumb to her husband. Just saw that Manchurian candidate one? That Sinatra can really act. Her husband cleared his throat, so she continued. Anyway... You know how imagination can take you places. I thought something underhanded might be going on. Then the man leaned in and whispered to Evan, You know the reds are everywhere. Evan nodded and looked over to his wife. You followed him? What did you see? Evan asked. The woman shook her head. She didn't see nothing, her husband said, standing defiantly. Nothing at all. At least that's what we'll tell the police if they come by here. But off the record, he lowered his voice. She said she saw him meet up with a young woman. They argued, probably just a lover's spat. You know how it is. Maybe the items were hers and she wanted them back. Who knows? I got bored of all the sneaking around at some point and just came home, the woman ended. And what time was that? The woman blew out a long breath and tried to remember. <sighs> Midnight, maybe? Staring at Charles' scrawl, the pawnbroker shivered. To think my wife might be one of the last people to see that man alive. Evan was pretty sure the murderer was the last one to see him alive. He ran back through what he remembered of the night. Charles possibly came by twice to the agency office before meeting his fate. So far, her timeline checked out. But who was the spat with? Did you see anyone else with him? Evan asked the pawnbroker's wife. Again, she gave a curt shake of the head. She didn't see nothing, the pawnbroker said. And you don't know why he wanted to purchase the items back. Nope, the woman said. He sold them over to us fair and square. The smile across Evan's face confused the pawnbroker. Evan could see he was about to start being the subject of questions himself, and instead of overstaying his welcome, he thanked the pawnbrokers for their time and help before hurrying out the door. So I think there were several questions that came up in the writing of this chapter uh, that I needed to address. Um, obviously, last chapter, chapter 29, um, we've met the, the bad guy, the man with the silver eye patch, 
and um, they're going to meet back up. Evan and this guy are going to meet back up at five o'clock uh, this afternoon. And so Evan needs to dig out any more information uh, uh, that he can about this Pearl and the murders and all the things before um, that, that meeting. Uh, so um, I wanted to, I guess one of the big questions that I'm, I was trying to answer is how on earth does um, Jason Charles lose the Pearl? That seems like a dumb idea if he has um, uh, run away with it and he suspects that this bad guy is going to come for him eventually. I don't know if he was trying to offload it and hope that he could skate out of town. Um, if, you know, and maybe he accidentally, in quotes, loses it in this um, uh gambling excursion or I, you know, th this is a question that I have not fully, even though the book is published and it's out and all the things, I don't know that I fully understand what Jason Charles was thinking. The best answer I have is that Jason Charles was not the smartest guy in the world. And either let's say he was, um, not in his right mind when he gave up the pearl or, um, was, thinking, well, if I dump it off on this pawnbroker, I can get out of town safely and that didn't go so well or what the deal is. But then at some point he, he's trying to get it back. And why is that? And I think a big question as to what happened that night when he's trying to get the pearl back from when he lost it to Evan um, and then met his fate uh, where he got murdered. I think there's a whole lot of like, what, what was he doing and why was he doing it? That is sort of still out there. Uh, you can uh, make up your own version of that once we get to the end of the story. Um, but I don't, just so you know, when, at least when I'm writing a story, I don't have, ev obviously, I don't have everything figured out. Um, and I think that that is also true for a lot of, you know, that's that's true of life. We see people doing things all the time, but we don't always know everything that's motivating them to do it. Now, as far as writing a story goes, you need to make it as logical as you can. So you can kind of say, well, there was a logic to it, but I don't have to know everything about their motivations. And one of the things that I really liked about when I read uh, The Maltese Falcon, which again, um, Shell Game has a lot of um, plot points that are uh, derived from The Maltese Falcon. I really liked after uh, reading the book, how much those people seem to really be acting of their own will. So so to speak, the camera seems to always be on Sam Spade in that book. But then as he is going through the story, you see that in the background where uh, Sam Spade isn't, real people are still making real choices uh, on their own motivations and that's affecting what he gets to use for information moving forward. And I was trying to employ that in here. So some of that is the camera wasn't always on Jason Charles. So I don't know that I've done all of the hard work. Maybe I should have to figure out what's going on with him. But um, I think that um, is, is a issue that we're still trying to piece together. And I think one of the benefits of not figuring all that out is, and I think also having people who are not completely telling the truth all the time is that 
because there are enough liars in the story, the fact that the story doesn't completely line up all the way, um, I think also that also makes that work because we're never going to find out really what happened. For example, um, you know, there's the infamous story of the of the uh, Kennedy assassination, and we're never going to know what actually happened because um, between all of the conspiracy conspiracy theories, and um, there were enough protocols broken in the chain of command of the evidence and the Warren Commission, all this kind of stuff. There's just enough doubt thrown at it. And the fact that Jack Ruby killed Lee Harvey Oswald, we're never going to actually know what happened. And so it leaves room for, I think this is how this worked or how it goes together. Um, But you can't do that to the reader too much. You've got to have a through line. And I think that's satisfactory for uh, this story, that there is a through line that you guys can um, read or listen to and get the gist of it. And then there's these side things like what was really going on with Jason Charles that it, it is ambiguous, but it, it kind of becomes okay. I don't know everything because it's not, it's not something that really hinges the whole story. Now, you could write me back and say, no, no, no. The fact that this is not nailed down is a big issue for me. And it's one of the drawbacks to the book. That would be completely fine uh, if that's how that happened. Um, I also uh, wanted to use this pawnbroker angle as opposed to a... Um, uh, you know, uh, Evan first picks up the pearl at a at a flea market of sorts. I didn't want the flea market to just be somebody who sells a bunch of wares because I didn't know how that person would get the pearl necessarily. So that it's a pawnbroker uh, helps in the how did um, a how did Jason Charles get rid of the thing, but then also how does Evan grab it. Um, but it reminded me, and, and I think how the whole thing uh, came to be, as far as like how I'm visualizing the whole thing. There's a movie that was written written way back in 1964. I don't know if it was written in 64, but it was shown in 1964. It was called The Pawnbroker, and um, it stars Rod Steiger, I believe, as a guy who used to be a prison guard at a Nazi prince. Uh, uh, prisoner of war camp, like a concentration camp. And somehow he has escaped, um, I guess, justice for what he has done is kind of live with this guilt of what he did back in World War II and owns or runs a pawnbroker shop in New York City. And he shut out a lot of the pain of that and kind of kind of what he does with that but it's kind of dark and grimy and i there was a play that i did in college uh where uh, it was kind of around holocaust survivors it was a very um um emotional show to say the very least and we had to watch the show we had to watch the movie to kind of get a better understanding of sort of the guilt and the shame that people may be feeling because i was born in 73 we're doing the show in 92, 93, and maybe it was later than that, 94. Anyway, I have no understanding of what anybody would be dealing with uh, coming out of World War II. So our director had us watch the movie to kind of get a better understanding of it. Um, 
And so when I'm writing these, the pawnbroker and his wife for shell game, that's sort of the template I'm running from that. I'm sure there are many pawnbrokers who are very nice uh, people who aren't that jaded and all that kind of stuff. But that um, is sort of what I was um, writing these people from that there's is just a little bit we don't we don't want to ask too many questions because we don't want to we want plausible deniability uh on a whole bunch of stuff um and just a little rough around the edges so that's if you've never seen the pawnbroker i can't recommend it um i mean i can it's if you're into really gut-wrenching movies that you're probably only gonna watch one time pawnbroker is a great movie if those are the kind of movies you're into but it's it's a rough um it's rough sort of just because of the subject matter i don't remember that it's all that um eh, there might be a couple of graphic scenes but anyway um if if you want to watch uh, a masterclass in acting, then Rod Steiger does a great job in that. Um, I was also did a couple things in this uh, chapter to further ground it. Um, the more I listen to this, I don't really know if I grounded it all that well in 1962, but the Manchurian candidate uh, with uh, Frank Sinatra had come out that year as well. And I also enjoyed that that was the movie that we could work on both because Frank Sinatra was a heartthrob back in the day and for the pawnbroker's wife to think he was kind of cute, um, but he could really act was kind of fun, but also that it sort of has it's, if you haven't seen Manchurian Candidate, I can recommend that one. It's also dealing with World War II, come to think of it, um, or something along those lines. Anyway, maybe Korea, but um, it's a really good kind of psychological thriller. Um, and if you're into that, that's a good book, but, um, it kind of plays with similar themes and tones that are in shell game. And so I thought that was, uh, fun that I was able to grab that and be something that's sort of another kind of mystery that if she's really into that and that's kind of her worldview, then as she's trying to unravel, you know, why did this crazy guy get rid of this pearl only to pick it back up in kind of a crazy way? And what's he going to do? And, you know, I'm going to tail him and all that kind of stuff. She gets to be her own detective, which is kind of fun. Um, but um, the story that she tells of the last time she saw Jason Charles, I hope for you, um, gives you some more clues. It certainly gave Evan some more clues as to what happened to him and how he may have met his end. And um, um, one of the difficulties, I think, of writing a uh, mystery is you need to write in red herrings. You need to throw um, your reader down uh, places that are misleading, but they sound plausible. And this is one of those. Um, it's not hugely misleading. I mean, this is what she saw. But then who are the players involved? And hopefully that leads you down a road. There were several chapters ago, uh, I mentioned that there are a lot of women in this story that have conflicting uh, motives in um, Evan's life. And to find out that the last conversation that uh, Jason had, at least as far as the pawnbroker's wife saw, was between him and a young woman. And I think that for you should raise all kinds of questions. Which young woman <laughs> that has been introduced in this story so far is it? Or is there another one yet to be introduced? So 
I'll just leave that there. That that's that is a a worthy piece of information uh, to latch onto, um, and we will see where that goes. Um, Next week, we uh, launch into chapter 31 and uh, further see uh, where where this rabbit trail takes Evan. And so I hope you come back for this. If you want to read along as we go through the podcast or you want to read ahead, that's also fair. You can find the entire book chapter by chapter on my website, brianthomascrop.com. Just go to the blog and it's all there. If you'd like to pick up a copy of Shell Game, you can do that over at Amazon.com. All the links for all of my books are there at my website. So if you have a hard time finding it on Amazon, swing over to BrianThomasCrop.com and you can find the links uh, to the books there. Um, I cannot, well, I can encourage you enough. I could encourage you so much that you're annoyed and don't want to do it, but I would appreciate it anyway. Um, If you're enjoying the show, if you're enjoying the book, uh, let your uh, friends and neighbors and coworkers know about the show, about the books, um, uh, that your recommendations are what help other people find out about them. And whether that's through uh, word of mouth, which is really the best way to tell somebody about it, you know, I will um, listen to almost anything that someone uh, tells me about just to give it a quick listen to see if it fits my taste or not. I will listen to that more than just the recommendation of some dude on a podcast. But um, another way to get this in front of other people is through ratings and reviews. So uh, wherever you're listening to this, uh, swing over to that platform and leave the show a, a honest rating and review. I would greatly appreciate that. But even more than that, I would appreciate it uh, if you came back next week as we continue our journey through the mysteries of Athens, Kansas. So I hope to meet you back here next time. In between now and then, I hope you have a great week. See you later.